watch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish podcast for independent minds. Ladies and gentlemen, yesterday's survey question at Smirconish.com had 11,887 votes for which I say thank you. Should the current global heat wave be a tipping point for climate change debate? 85% and change said yes. The NBC coverage that I pinned to at Smirconish.com today notes that you can pick a spot on Earth and chances are there's a climate emergency unfolding there right now. North America, Europe, Africa, Asia, all sweltering under extreme heat. In the U.K., a new provisional record of 104.5 Fahrenheit was observed yesterday, obliterating. You know, if you said to me, Michael, they set a they set a record as 104.5. What do you think the last benchmark record, however you'd like to verbalize it, was? I'd say, oh, I don't know, 103.2. It was 101.6. So it like blew it away. And that was set just three years ago. Firefighters in France, Spain, Portugal, Greece, all battling wildfires that are ravaging a southern swath of the continent. And this month, two melting glaciers collapsed within a week, triggering avalanches of snow and ice that killed at least 11 hikers in Italy's Dolomites region. I didn't see that story, so I found that interesting that NBC had it. Now here in the States, 140 America, 140 million Americans preparing for blistering heat today. Central California across the Mississippi Valley into the Northeast, wildfires and record heat all over the place, including in North Africa. Interesting comment from Ben Zaitchik, professor in Earth and Planetary Sciences Department at Johns Hopkins University. He studies extreme heat. He said this, though they are unfolding simultaneously, the heat events in the U.S. and U.K. are independent. Does that mean they're not related to climate change? That is not what it means. He said both are made more likely by climate change, which is raising temperatures worldwide as humans pump heat trapping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. What are the odds you're going to have two major things happening at the same time? He said the probability of these compound events is increasing because the baseline has shifted. Yesterday, we learned the identity of the hand sanitizer cop relative to Rob Elementary, the Uvalde shooting. And that's why today I'm asking at the survey question, oh, I'm trying to train myself to say it, the, the, the poll question of the day at Smirconish.com. Why is that? Someone uh, whose opinion I respect said to me, it's, it, a survey and a poll are two totally different things, and what you actually do are you have daily polls. Hey, we used to say poll question. I did, and then I thought that it implied science. Oh. And I got away from it. And you thought survey was more general. I did. Okay, so Apparently now... Apparently I was mistaken. Oh, so we're doing a poll question now. I'm going to go back to calling it today's well, do, poll whoa, whoa, question. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And we say the polling department. Right. Do I need to change it on the website? Because we have survey question on the website. Do, Do we? you want to change it? Well, the website's about to get changed. Okay. Is that's that part really, of it? That's really what precipitated this whole conversation. Ah. Yeah. yeah. It'll be called the poll question come September. I may as well get used oh, to it. Oh, great. Okay. I'll start saying it too. So today's poll question, should the 376 law enforcement individuals who responded to the Uvalde shooting be publicly identified? Should we know who all of them are? Not I, Initially, I was going to say the ones in the hallway, but just because you see them in the hallway doesn't mean there weren't another 50 around the corner. Should we know all their names? Or does that cross a line? I'd be very curious to see how this turns out 
and frankly, what the interest level is in it. Should the 376 law enforcement individuals who responded to the Uvalde shooting be publicly identified? What's new relative to Uvalde? There are actually a number of of crime story updates, and this is at the top of the list. The Associated Press, and I link to it, of course, has a, a really interesting analysis that suggests frequent lockdowns may have contributed to the tragedy. Obviously not a defense of of what did or didn't take place in the hallway and the cops and so forth, but teachers and students at Robb Elementary School knew the safety protocols. They knew what they were supposed to do when the 18-year-old with the AR-15 showed up. How? Well, because dozens of times in the previous four months alone, the campus had gone into lockdown or issued security alerts, not because of active shooters, but because nearby there were often high-speed pursuits of migrants coming from the U.S.-Mexico border. In fact, the frequency of lockdowns and security alerts at Uvalde was about 50 between February and May alone. And the words of the the Texas uh, House report, uh, I think, are, are spot on. This probably created a diminished sense of vigilance. Have you ever had a faulty fire alarm, burglar alarm, maybe you lived in a college dorm or in an apartment high-rise where it's always going off. And it's like a, a boy who cried wolf kind of thing. That's part of the dynamic, seemingly, of what went on in Uvalde. Also on the crime blotter, the Greenwood Mall story. We still don't know a heck of a lot about Elijah Dickin, other than he was the good guy with the gun and everyone is appropriately singing his praises. We do know that he was shopping with his girlfriend when a gunman opened fire on a food court. A number of eyewitness accounts have related the poise that he showed directing people behind him to take cover as he went to confront the gunman. The grandmother of the girlfriend, the grandmother of Shay Goldman, that's Elijah Dickens, 19-year-old girlfriend, says her granddaughter's life was one of those spared through the young man's actions. Uh, a 12-year-old, the parent of a 12-year-old girl who was wounded, her name is Allison Dick, in a live Facebook post says he's a superhero. Many citing the data that I've referenced time and again from the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training at Texas State University, noting just how rare this is. In fact, the New York Times coverage, I I circled this in my hard copy today, they called him a statistical unicorn. And I know that some of you will say, well, they don't want the conversation now to shift so that everybody is armed. I don't want the conversation to shift so that everyone is armed, because if everybody is armed, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of crossfire and mistakes that are made. Another crime update. I think this is the right outcome. No charge for the bodega clerk after all. Uh, And I ask the question, Okay, but what about the girlfriend? After weeks of mounting pressure, the Manhattan District Attorney on Tuesday dropped a murder charge against a bodega clerk who fatally stabbed an attacker. Jose Alba is the person to whom I refer. 61-year-old guy. He killed Austin Simon. Simon was 31. This happened on July 1. Simon had gone behind the counter at the Harlem bodega, shoved Alba after he argued with Simon's girlfriend over paying for snacks for her 10-year-old daughter. Police investigators said that Simon was not armed. Alvin Bragg, who is the Manhattan DA, one of the progressive 
uh, type uh, district attorneys and prosecutors that are whose numbers, I guess I would say, are on the rise. He charged Abel with second degree murder. And the New York City tabloids, the Post in particular, and Mayor Eric Adams, himself a former cop, all came to the clerk's defense. Bragg and his office were criticized for initially requesting a half a million dollars bail, which prosecutors said they asked for because Alba had been planning to leave the country. Alba supporters said that he was defending himself from a younger man who was the aggressor. That is certainly the way that I saw the tape. Here in Philadelphia, a sad milestone. The number of homicides thus far this year is at 300. The 300th victim was an 18-year-old man shot several times Monday night, according to local news affiliates. Among other victims this year, a 16-year-old boy who was fatally shot three times in the face, a 17-year-old boy who was gunned down near his high school in the middle of the afternoon. Did you read about the shooting that took place on Kelly Drive? I think it was early, I want to say Saturday morning. Yeah, so many people jog. I drive down all the time. So many people jog and push baby carriages and so forth. I saw the pictures of the police tape by boathouses that I know very, very well. It was right along that stretch. Beautiful stretch. Gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful stretch. I I might be mistaken in saying I think it's still unsolved. Check check me on that. Would, Would you mind doing so? This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124 and on the SXM app. Political news. So Doug Mastriano is the Democrat, pardon me, the Republican nominee for governor here in Pennsylvania and and, and a controversial guy, won a a multi-candidate field with Donald Trump's support and is now going to square off against Josh Shapiro, who's the incumbent attorney general and the Democratic nominee. You might remember that Josh Shapiro ran what seemed at the time like some pretty clever television ads promoting Mastriano in a way that that was kind of a dog whistle for Democrats, but for Republicans offered some evidence or information about Mastriano that might make some MAGA-like Republicans want to vote for him. That could ultimately go in the category of be careful what you wish for, because Mastriano trails Josh Shapiro by a more narrow margin than the Fetterman Dr. Oz race. So Mastriano, despite being, I would say, an extremist, is within striking distance, is within the margin of error. With all that as background, I tell you, it never seems to work when those who get jammed up through their social media try and just delete things. Like it's it just somebody's going to find it. There's going to be some cached version somewhere. The Philadelphia Inquirer is on this case. So too the New York Times, Holly Otterbein at Politico. Here's the story. In early April, Doug Mastriano was recording a Facebook live video on his phone after a legislative session in Harrisburg when he segued into his thoughts on global warming. Very timely example. The state senator from South Central Pennsylvania, who would become the Republican nominee for governor the following month, told his supporters he wanted to pull the state out of a program to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, calling it nonsense that human activities could significantly alter the Earth's climate. A connection between burning fossil fuels and global warming? Merely a theory, Mastriano said, based on quote-unquote pop science. As supporting evidence, Mastriano referred to an event that he said he attended in Washington, D.C. in about 1970 when he was a Cub Scout. 
Environmentalists there had been warning that when the world's population reached one billion, he recalled, there would be a major catastrophe. That was the outrage back then. There was no global catastrophe when we reached one billion. The anecdote, of course, makes little sense, not least because the world population at the time was already an estimated 3.7 billion. Well, the video has disappeared from his Facebook page. In the last three months alone, more than a dozen other videos have also been deleted. They include freewheeling conversations in which Mastriano predicts that the November election will be marred by Democratic voter fraud, that accuse Republicans who don't support him of looking down on veterans, and calls the fight against abortion the most important issue of our lifetime. So he's now removed all that information, but of course journalists... And uh, tech enthusiasts are digging it all back up and putting it all back out there. He's trying to run now as something that he wasn't in primary season. And Dr. Oz is trying to do the same thing. In Maryland, State Delegate Dan Cox defeated former State Commerce Secretary Kelly Schultz to win the Republican nomination for governor. This was one of those races that pitted two sides of the GOP against each other. I guess Larry Hogan can't run again. Cox was endorsed by former President Trump, leading Schultz 56 to 40 when the AP called the race. That's interesting. So Trump claiming victory in Maryland, but yet it's another of these cases like Mastriano in Pennsylvania. Okay, but now have they just nominated, you know, is this another Christine O'Donnell, Delaware, which case? Yeah, okay, Todd Aiken, you won the primary, but you could never win a general election. Now, I find this interesting. Uh, U.S. former former U.S. Labor Secretary on President Obama's watch, Tom Perez, was often a guest on this program. When the labor numbers would come out monthly, he would often come on and, and you know, talk about them, try and spin them for the administration. Uh, you know, a, a solid guest, and I enjoyed having him on on a regular basis. Tom Perez was running in the Democratic primary and apparently has been edged out in a nine-person field by former nonprofit leader Wes Moore. I don't know what Wes Moore does today, but I know that a decade ago he had a hot book on his hands uh, writing, what was the title of the book, TC? The Other Wes Moore? The Other Wes Moore. The Other Wes Moore, yes. What I remember is that Oprah got onto this, and then Wes Moore was actually a speaker at our children's school, and they're like, Dad, this guy is the real deal. You know, you got to get him on your program and so on and so forth. Wes Moore wrote a book that got a lot of attention because he was writing about someone of the same name on a totally different career trajectory. And when I realized that that he seems as if he won the Maryland Democratic primary, I said to Dan, hey, can we quickly get this from the archives and make it today's book release? And Dan, we are doing that, right? Yes, this will be our release. I am actually working on it as we speak. So it'll be uh, it'll be uh, wherever you download your podcasts before lunchtime. Does it stand the test of time? It's 12 years old. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been combing through it, and uh, it's you, and it's from uh, your old terrestrial radio days, and you have a little uh, back and forth with uh, your old friend Greg after the interview, um, <laughs> talking about the, the two different West Moors, and, and very interesting, 100%. What do, you, what do you have your finger on the button for, TC? Well, do you I just, have some? Yeah, just, no, I don't, have, I don't have some audio, but it's interesting. The other Westmore, one name, two fates. In December of 2000, the Baltimore Sun ran a small piece about Westmore, a local student who had just received a Rhodes scholarship. 
The same paper also ran a series of articles about four young men who had allegedly killed a police officer in a spectacularly botched armed robbery. The police were still hunting for two of the suspects who had gone on the lam, a pair of brothers. One was named Wes Moore. And the Westmore that you're talking about now, the political candidate, couldn't get his mind off of the fact that he was Westmore and this was Westmore and their lives were so very different. I remember him being very good on his feet. Very thoughtful, a dec- I remember. A, a decade ago. I have to say something else, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into Maryland politics, about which I know very little. But the idea that a former head of the DNC can't win a nine-way primary, I think underscores a point that I've made about power in this country, political power resting in the hands of the media and not in the party organizations. I mean, wouldn't you think that a a DNC had Tom Perez was the he was the head of the DNC during a presidential cycle. So, you know, a high profile DNC head and a very smart guy. I'll tell you what I remember. Tom Perez was the labor secretary. And when he came on my program here on POTUS, I said to him, so you're the labor secretary, huh? Tell me about the college jobs that you once had or the high school jobs, the summer jobs that you once had. Do you remember what was the top of his trash truck? Is that right? Trash truck. He said to me, "Okay, I worked on a trash truck. I'm like, wow. All right. Check. You know, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So but my point is that that the fact that Tom Perez can't win a a nine person field uh, just speaks to you. Wouldn't you think that a former head of the DNC would have so many chits and fundraising opportunities and visibility, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it seems like it's Wes Moore. This is the Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Rachel Maddow had obtained and showed on MSNBC a memo that Merrick Garland had endorsed which continued a Bill Barr policy speaking to uh, investigations of presidential candidates close in time to elections. So USA Today circles back on that today, and they say in the lead, don't expect a federal indictment of Donald Trump over the January 6, 2021 insurrection before November. Legal analysts say a newly revealed Justice Department memo suggests Attorney General Merrick Garland reminded the U.S. Department of Justice officials that extra steps are required before action can be taken in politically sensitive cases during the fall election season. And unprecedented charges against a former president would certainly seem to qualify. Well, I'm not sure. That's that's USA Today's uh, supposition. They report legal analysts say Garland is restating a longstanding policy that discourages the announcement of investigations or indictments of major political figures on the cusp of elections because it could be construed as interfering in the election. Here in Philadelphia, we had a high profile mayor's race. It was John Street. And it was Sam Katz. Was it Katz Street one or two? Hmm. I think it was their rematch, but I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my life on it. And the feds had planted a bug in the mayor's office. Prior to the election, and it all came to light. In the final 30 days of the election, now, the mayor wasn't the target of the probe. Someone in his orbit was. And by the way, David Axelrod was then running streets campaign and he totally turned it against the republicans the feds john ashcroft and george bush like look look what the feds are trying to do in meddling in this it was a huge embarrassment 
because of the discovery. Somebody found it. I think it was a cleaning person. I don't remember. So you can understand how a bug in a mayor's office, when the mayor is not the target and the mayor is up for election. Well, Michael, you're a dope. Of course, he was up for re-election or it wouldn't have been the mayor's office. Yeah, it was the re-election. So it's that type of thinking. Hey, the feds ought to keep their distance close in time to elections. But the reason that I'm circumspect about this is because Donald Trump's not on the ballot. So if you're saying, you know, you, you can't indict Trump between now and the election. OK, what about after the election? And this this is really important stuff, because this is why Trump wants to get out there and announce sooner than later. Yes, he wants to freeze DeSantis. There's yet another survey out there. This one's from Michigan. Halpern had it today in Wide World of News, talking about how DeSantis and Trump are are within the margin of error. So he wants to freeze DeSantis, but he also wants to make sure that he's got some protection against Merrick Garland indicting him. Something else that I will say on that score is that it might not be the Justice Department that poses the greatest legal peril to Trump. It might be Georgia. It might be Fulton County. Prosecutors in Atlanta have informed 16 Trump supporters who formed an alternate slate of 2020 presidential electors from Georgia that they could face charges in this ongoing investigation into election interference. And look, if uh, Fannie Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County, is looking at the 16 would-be Trump electors, what does that tell us? about her willingness to go after Trump himself. I mean, you know, and this relates to the whole Brad Raffensperger, you know, all I need is X number of vote thing. Now, let me balance what I just told you with Jonathan Turley, Professor Turley from GW, his analysis in The Hill today, of course, linked in the newsletter and posted at Smirconish.com. Turley makes the point that here we here we are on the verge of the eighth and final scheduled January 6th hearing. Tomorrow night's the big shebang. They're going to go through the 187 minutes between the end of Trump's speech on the ellipse and his call for supporters to leave the Capitol. And Turley says, you know, they've they've established a number of things but they haven't established the requisite mens re for Trump. They have not built a criminal case against Donald Trump. The committee has built, these are Turley's words, a case that no compelling evidence of widespread voter fraud existed in the 2020 presidential election and that Trump knew or should have known he was asserting baseless allegations. White House strategy sessions became increasingly heated between Trump's two teams of lawyers, breathtaking December 18, 2020 meeting when two lawyers seemed close to a physical altercation. Clearly, Trump only heard what he wanted to hear, but that doesn't prove that he knew the election was valid. And I tell you that in anticipation of this story from Wisconsin that might otherwise seem really odd. The assembly speaker in Wisconsin is named Robin Voss. He says that President, former President Trump called him last week in yet another attempt to convince Wisconsin Republicans to decertify the state's 2020 presidential results. What's that all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. Trump is crazy like a fox. Because Trump knows that he if he's he's bolstering his legal case if he's consistently right through now 
speaking and even taking actions and saying, yeah, I was ripped off. After all, I relied on lawyers. Forget the fact that some of them have been disbarred or, you know, otherwise been disciplined. But I believe that this strange story from Wisconsin, where Robin Voss says just last week Trump called him and still wanted a decertification in Wisconsin, is Trump asserting his legal defense. That's what I think it's all about. Um. All right. Well, that's the political news of the day. Uh, well, one one more. This is this is significant. Ten uh, Senate Republicans would be needed for this to actually take effect. But it's it's a big story that yesterday the House passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which would provide federal marriage equality protection by repealing the Defense of Marriage Act. This, of course, because of what Justice Clarence Thomas said in the Overturning of Roe versus Wade case, the bill passed. 47 Republicans joined every Democrat in voting for the bill. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was not on board. Steve Scalise were not on board. What will happen in the Senate? Don't know. Don't know. Only one Republican, Susan Collins of Maine, is a backer of the marriage equality measure. Lisa Murkowski said she'd like to see contraception and same-sex marriage rights protected together under federal law. Dick Durbin thinks they're going to get to 60, but we don't know. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds.